So had you dismissed then by that stage West End Girls was gone for all good? Yeah, we hadn't dismissed it, had we? We still like the song and everything. And we, and thought, right. we thought the song was good, and also it was recorded originally in 1983, so we thought um, in 1985 when we redid it, we just thought we could have done a much, much better version. The first version was made, recorded and mixed in four hours, and the second version was done in five days. And it's a much more three-dimensional sounding record. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it was probably our favourite song we'd written in many ways, and um, so we just wanted to give it another go. And, uh, and of course, it's, it's, been, it's been very successful. Stephen Haig, and this is my 80s thing. Part one of the interview begins now. I left home quite young. I was 17 and um, I was from the East Coast from Maine and um, a friend of mine from high school had ended up in Los Angeles and somebody who I used to, um, you know, figure out Beatles songs to on the piano and stuff, you know, we had a musical connection. And so I went to LA and I just kind of you know, flittered around town for a year or so and I was painting cars, which I knew how to do. Um, and that was the only kind of proper job I had before I started to make money with music. And I fell into a couple cover bands and met some people and I started drinking quite regularly at the Troubadour Bar, the infamous Troubadour Bar, and met yeah. even more people there. And I suppose the, the first thing that really clicked in was I met a guitar player named Tom Moncrief who happened to be Lindsey Buckingham's um, roommate when he when the times he had split up with Stevie and he was playing with a guy named Walter Egan uh, and I met Walter uh, who I still know to this day and he was putting a band together he was about to do an album that um, Lindsay and Stevie were going to produce um, that took a little longer to come together than um, than he had hoped but eventually it did and I ended up playing on that album and in the meantime when it, it I'll just backtrack a little bit. I had started to meet some people in Los Angeles and I was playing on, on some um, publishing demos and I was meeting some of the people behind the scenes that way, a couple of publishers and stuff. And so obviously I started out as a player, not as an engineer. And then around the time that I that I met Tom and fell in with, with Walter, I was feeling quite confident as a player and I've been um, doing some early synth programming, you know, when synths were new. I had um, I managed to get my hands on a CS80. It was one of the only... I don't know if you want to get into tech stuff or not. It was one of the only um, polyphonic synths in Los Angeles at the time, and I was doing some session work, some proper um, session work. What year would that have been? 
that would have been ooh, 75, 75, 76. Okay. In, in, that's, in quite, that's quite early for synthesizers then. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but they capture my imagine, imagination pretty much straight away. I didn't really have the discipline to become a great player at anything, um, but <clears throat> but I, I learned enough to get around. So anyway, with Walter Egan, there's a single called Magnet and Steel. It was the first single, and it went top five in America. And so suddenly I was playing on a hit single, which was <laughs> a big surprise. Now I told you so you Walter went on tour, quite a big tour. He was opening for Heart and Foreigner, two staples of that period in the 70s. And so I was playing like 20,000 seaters when I was 23, 24 years old, just scared shitless. <laughs> I really belonged in the studio, I found out during that. <clears throat> and then someone else I met, we get to the more key stuff now. Someone else I met during this period <clears throat> was um, Jules Shear, who's going on to have an illustrious career as a songwriter and, and made solo albums. But at that time, um, he was looking to put a band together and Walter had gone off the road. I was at Loose Ends. And so we started this band called Jewels and the Polar Bears. And in fairly short order, the way things often would happen back then, we got signed to Columbia Records and we made an album. And on the back of that first album, the critics loved us and no one else we didn't sell any records at all, you know, but, but we were very well regarded. Well, there you are on your new pretty star. You just don't want to know. You're so in love with your in a car. You just don't want to know. And the ride is pretty nice. So how come you never take the same one twice? I guess I want you But we, we landed uh, for a tour of America. We had done a few club things around L.A., but um, for a tour of America, um, Peter Gabriel really loved the album, and he contacted us through channels, and, and he wanted us to open for him in America, and it was his first... A proper American tour after Genesis, and he was playing SUNY colleges in upstate New York and and s small halls and stuff like that, you know, with some diehard Genesis fans. But but it was all on a very small scale compared to what it became, of course. Yeah, so the Polar Bears grew up in I don't know 20 or 30 dates or over a couple of years off and on. Um, and through that period, Peter and I became quite good friends, and. Um, we were chumming around, you know, we were both in our 20s. He was in his later 20s than me, but, but we stayed in touch after the tour stopped. And uh, I sent him some things that I had been recording. By this time, I was living back in Boston, in Massachusetts. I got out of L.A. Um, you know, there's that East Coast, West Coast thing in America. And I, yeah. and I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't going to stay in L.A. indefinitely in my head. And so I sent him some things I've been recording at home on a couple of TX four-track machines I'd 
been doing some home recording and, and getting kind of good at that actually. And, and the, uh, he really liked it. And he took, he took some of the stuff to Charisma Records, uh, which was his label. And they liked it too. <clears throat> and nothing really went forward with, with the act that it was with a Boston uh, girl. But a few months later, they, they contacted me and asked me if I would want to produce and help them write, because uh, I'd written some st- the stuff that, that Peter had sent them originally. Some stuff with this New York uh, outfit called Rocksteady Crew. A Rocksteady Crew and world-famous Supreme Team, for instance, those two acts, and I've worked, yes. on, worked with them too. They were offshoots from the Duck Rock album that Malcolm McLaren had done with Trevor Horn. And Charisma, <clears throat> in their entrepreneurial spirit, were trying to milk that sucker for everything <laughs> it was worth. They were just squeezing an axe out of it left and right. And so I went I went to New York and I met them um, and we did some writing. It was really, you know, they were kids, you know, but there was an older brother involved whose name I've forgotten, I'm afraid. Even very nice guy though, talented. And then they came up to Boston uh, to record and we and we did that um Hey, you, the Rocksteady Crew thing. And it was fun, you know, and, and the record company liked it. And they put it out and it went top five in the UK. And I thought that was very strange. <laughs> really, I, didn't, I didn't know hardly anything about the UK market at that time. I'd been to England once with the Polar Bears when we, we did a short tour over there and did Ogre oh, Wilson Test and some things like that. Not much came of it. <clears throat> so they asked me to do the rest of that album. And I did. And I don't really remember how the album did, but I think probably fairly well. Around that time, I did the world famous Supreme team thing hey dj which i also was involved in writing and did that and i don't remember what how that did in in the uk but it did some stuff in america and all the ladies sang along huh Nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty one. Nineteen eighty two. Well the polar bears the polar bears made three albums. Yeah, because in nineteen um, if we want to, should we get to nineteen eighty then? Because in nineteen eighty you had Bad for Business, which was the third album. That's right, the bad yeah, the prophetic wasn't released until the nineties. The prophetically named Bad for Business. Um yeah, that was the album which I thought was the best polar bears album that got us dropped from the label. <laughs> um, you know, they just they just weren't hearing it at that point. And Peter Philbin, who signed us, um, he was about to leave the label and that all just fell apart really um but but one thing i, I didn't really mention jules Shear and i were producing those polar bear yes, records for yes. better or worse although chuck pluck and who was uh, who worked a lot with springsteen he was involved in that third one a bit i'm sent through joy and despair like a shoot wanna live like a lion now they're putting me through the I know it's a mask, but I'll dress the way I want to dress. All day moods, nothing found, nothing ends. My vision is perfect in small places. 
So was that your first production credit then on the first um, Jules and the Polar Bears? I did album? a couple of things around LA before I left LA. This this um, this duo called Gleaming Spires. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of left out this this part of it, saying I had recording gear in Boston, but but in in Los Angeles um, towards the end of the seventies, I had put together a little recording studio in a garage and out in Van Nuys in the Valley, and I had pretty good. Yeah, I mean this was before home recording was a thing on any level, and so I I was through my connections I'd made through Walter Egan and some people I was meeting around town and drinking with at the Jupiter. I was doing publishing demos and learning a lot of stuff on that gear. And then I had a smaller rig in Boston, which led to the Peter Gabriel connection. But um, yeah, Gleaming Spires. There was a couple of other little things I'd forgotten. That one got released. That was, they had kind of a hit on K-Rock. It was called, uh, Are You Ready for the Sex Girls? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting, interesting you, video. Yeah. You've, done, you've, you've done your homework. Are you ready for the sex girls? The hot, hot, lead, hot. Okay, yeah, but then I ended up back in Boston, and, and, in, and in Boston, I was I met the Cars quite early on, and became friends with Rick Ocasek and um, L.A. East in particular, Greg Hawks a bit too, you know. But I was working at their studio called Synchro Sound, and that's where I did um, ended up doing um, the Rock City Crew and Will Sermon Supreme Team. Also around that time, I did an album with this band called Slow Children, which was yes. a, a duo. Um, and Pal Shazar, the, the the woman in the band, was actually uh, Jules's wife. Oh, she became his wife. And I um, I did some light touring with them, not tour tours, but some TV stuff and some video things and stuff. There's some good stuff on that, particularly on that first album. Uh, Talk About Horses was really good. And the drummer from the Polar Bears, David Beebe, played on that on that record as well. And I was playing bass on that album, I think. Take a walk through the city. Okay, let's go back to 1980 because you did some programming according to to the um <laughs> In research for Dolly Parton and Gordon Lightfoot. Is that correct? Well, I was probably, you know, like and what, did, what did that entail in 1980 on a Dolly Parton and Gordon Lightfoot record? Um, there, there was, I, I mentioned, i the chronology a bit mixed up when I got some of this quite good gear, you know, but, but the, but the big polyphonic synth, there was only three in LA at the time. Stevie Wonder, well, Stevie Wonder had two, there was four. <laughs> this, course, guy yeah. Michael, this guy named Michael <laughs> Boddicker, who was um, a really good programmer who did some stuff with Quincy Jones. Um, he had Michael one Jackson, and, yeah. and, and I had one. And I was doing some things for Richard Perry, some of the stuff that he was working on. Um, and this was back before programmers got any credit. I, I was just, oh yeah, just the kid who knows how to run this thing. You know I mean? You know, yeah, yeah. It wasn't really a thing. And I was also, I became friends um, with this, um, f- fabulous keyboard player called Michael O'Mardian, who um, who was a pianist, um, and he played on a lot of records. And he wanted to get all sort of synthia, or at least wanted to have the option. And so I did two three sessions with him, and I became like a regular um, with him. You know, I'd, I'd bring it in. Sometimes he'd see a city, which is as big as a fucking tank. Um, I'd bring it in, get it set up, and sometimes he'd use it, sometimes he wouldn't. Um, but I'd, but I'd um, 
get paid for, for being there and, and getting a sound for him if you did. And so it, it was like, that was the Dolly Parton record in particular, for instance. Gordon Lightfoot, and there were several other things between him and, and Richard Perry, who I became sort of a, the guy who would get called on those sessions as well. So I was making some money in around um, the demise of the polar bears and the slow children stuff, which actually lapsed over past the end of the polar bears. Uh, and then came the move to Boston and then the um, taking advantage of the Peter Gabriel connection. And uh, well, he actually, he, he was instrumental in making it all happen. I mean, if he hadn't taken that stuff to charisma, I wouldn't have been offered those early things. I mean, who knows what would have happened i mean peter and i are still good friends to this day he's been great yeah of um, course you worked with him later on the um yeah yeah we, we, we've, we've done we've done a few things did some touring with him too when Larry Fast got unexpectedly ill on the road um, and I was in LA and so was Peter and and I actually rehearsed a few things but then Larry made a f- remarkable comeback I think once he heard that I was going to take oh, damn him no, I, <laughs> I, I know Larry he's, he's terrific he's a great guy but did you realize uh, at an early stage that the live playing wasn't for you and studio is where you wanted to be there's a lot to be said for it you know I, I loved some aspects of being on the road. I mean, I, I was young and quite cute and the fucking girls were everywhere. You know, I mean, that, you know, the, <laughs> all that stuff. And this was before, let's be frank, this was before AIDS. Um, and, okay. and it was, it was just, it was fabulous. Really. It was for a kid, you know, like play, playing on these big shows, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. But then, you know, there was the grinding it out thing. And I was never really particularly comfortable on stage. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a natural performer by any means. I mean, I could look like I belong there, you know, you know what I mean? But it wasn't something that I relished at all. And I didn't miss being on the road when I wasn't on the road. And I, in fact, I really looked forward to getting home and digging around with tape recorders and stuff, you know, and, and taking the money I made on the road and buying some new mics, for instance, you know, it was, it was really always kind of geared around that. Although I wasn't particularly, I never really set out to be a producer you know the polar bears records we wanted control that was really about control that wasn't really yeah. so much about artistic expression um yeah we just wanted to have control of those records and it didn't necessarily work in our favor but i learned a lot making those records and so it happened fairly organically the production thing thing so by the time i got offered things like will you be a producer for this like even something as basic as a rock city crew i had some tools you know i mean i was kind of i suppose i was sort of ready for it uh, although it wasn't like i didn't feel like now i can be a producer um, a little bit later i thought now i can be a producer uh, but but after well on the heels of the uh, you have the chronology in front of you i don't yes on the heels of like world famous supreme team for instance i did i actually got together with malcolm himself and he came to boston and um, welcome. I was friends with Malcolm up, up to the end, although we did have a few falling outs here and there. But okay, well, yeah, we will get to that. Um, just, yeah. just so to cover the 1980 to 82 period, so you did the last 
Jules and the Polar Bear album. He did the Gleaming Spires, a couple of Slow Children albums. Gleaming, 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 uh, Gleaming Spires. Gleaming Spires, yeah. Was Gleaming. That was that was right at the beginning. That was that was back back around the time the Polar Bears were getting together. And I'm not sure what year you have coming up on that, but but it, or at least I think of it as being part of. So was it made in eighty and released in eighty one? I think it's got a release date. Was of 80. it? Well, yeah. Okay. Right. Okay, and and the, the polar reg- bears. When did the polar bears start? Was it seventy seven or seventy eight? Yeah, I think seventy eight, seventy nine, eighty for the three albums. I think it's around that go. time. So at this stage, were you a musician who produced, or were you a producer who could also, you know, play on the sessions? Well, how how did you see your role at that stage from eighty and eighty two? Um, well, I was. I can't. I can't recall an album. It's hard for me to recall a record ever that I've made ever to this day that I haven't played on. And yeah, so yeah, it was always. I was always playing on on all that stuff even if it was just if even if it was a fairly self-contained band and i would just do a keyboard part in the chorus because i could do it faster than they could or something you know what i mean it, it, it was it wasn't it wasn't so much about am um, because i didn't think they were capable or something like that it was just part of the process you know but in the polar bear certainly i mean i was playing piano and, and keyboards in general on, on that project slow children i was playing bass and some keyboards and um and on the Rocksteady crew, for instance, and some of those things in around there, it was primarily keyboards. And and I knew, you know, drum machines were just starting. And, you know, I, I loved all that. I, I still love the gear. That's one thing that helps keep my head in it even today. I just love the gear. Yeah. 1983. Okay, so let's get to that. That's 1983, Rocksteady Crew. So you touched on it in a little bit of how you got into that. So you produced and co-wrote it as well. So how did that work? Because it's quite a large group, wasn't it? Like I said, I get I get the call through the, the Peter Gabriel connection, uh, just because the and I'm sure it was I'm sure that Charisma Records could have found someone else to do it, but the fact was I was in America, <laughs> and they were fairly cheap, and and so it was like this. Oh, let's give this guy a try. He's right up the road. I really do think it was it had a lot to do with it. Um, but yeah, like I said, yeah, they were kids and they had been kids on the Duck Rock thing, but there was an older brother involved. And I don't know if you see the names there on the credits, I would recognize his name, but but he was quite ambitious and quite together. And and he played me, I got together with him and I met the kids, you know, but they, we, we weren't all huddled around writing, you know, it, it was me and him. Right. And then maybe a couple of the names popped up on it because that's the way they did the publishing. But, but, but he and I wrote the stuff and, um, and yeah, talented guy whose name I can picture him clearly. I can't remember his name. And so once we had something, I don't think we even did demos to show the label. Or, or, you know, we we just did we did the um, Hey You the Rock City Crew, and we made that into a record. And then Charisma dug that and they put it out. And I think I, I'm not even sure we made the whole album before it came out. You know, it was all sort of part of a process. And, and we made <clears throat> we made that um, album. And um, yeah, then I started. I was doing some others stuff around boston as well a guy named andy pratt does that ring a bell i think he's in my old other credits yeah i was was starting to pick up some bits and pieces mostly through some of the things around boston came from rico kasich in the cars and i yeah i I did some programming on on a suicide record and a ministry album and i did did programming and some keyboard playing on 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 rick's solo album and he was introduced me to people around town we were just meeting organically you know people who come by the studio synchro sound there was two main studios in Boston, Synchro Sound, which was kind of a closed shop, but the real players and stuff would find their way through there. And Roy Thomas Baker worked there as a producer and there was some, it was on the map. And there was another studio, residential studio called Blue Jay, which was a real studio. It was just a bit, a bit outside of town. I can still picture the view out the windows, all just out in the woods, you know. Um, but yeah, so, so Rick 
played a, a role in integrating me into the Boston thing. Jules and I, who was living in Boston at that time as well, produced an album for Elliot Easton, who was the guitar player in the in the Cars, who's a wonderful guy, a quite magnificent guitar player, and but not too much of a singer really. Um, but we but we did this record with him, and 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 that was me and Jules getting back together to produce something post Polar Bears. That was all happening around that same time. I don't I don't really have the. And there's the also a Jules Shear solo album, wasn't it? Can I ask quickly about Rocksteady Crew? Um, yeah, yeah. I listen to the single because I've, I've always remembered the chorus. I, I last couple of years I, I would sing the chorus to the kids for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> Hey, if I needed them, hey, you and the Rocksteady crew, I just it would just be in my head. I've not heard the actual full song probably since like eight, the mid eighties, mm-hmm. and I heard it again. It really stands out. It's a really great track. Oh well, thanks. I mean, yeah. it, it was it was just a product of its time. You know? Yeah, yeah, of its time. But it's one of those things that's of its time, but still, yeah, I, it still stands I, I up. I can I can I can hear the chorus clear as a bell, but I can't remember too much of it. But doesn't it go into a double time thing towards the end? Yeah, everything doubles up or something. I don't know. I haven't listened to that for a long time. There's, there's I, heard, a... I, I heard Hey D, Hey DJ just last week, actually. I literally listened to that an hour ago because I had no idea it existed. But I read it up somewhere, actually, on the notes. Um, well, um, the wait, which, which track? The hey DJ. Because oh, right. it wasn't a hit. I think it got to number 52 in the UK, so it wasn't a hit. We'll get to that in a second, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the members of the Rocksteady crew. Um, I'm going to give you a list of them, and you tell me if you worked with them or not on the recording, Okay. Do these, any of these names ring any bells for you? Crazy Legs? Well, they, well, the the kids, the you know, they all kind of did group vocals and stuff. I don't remember. I don't remember that. Probably didn't know their names at the time. <laughs> um, so, so not, you don't remember DJ Cucumber Slice? N- n- no. DJ Cubert, Fever One, Mad Child, Mr. Wiggles, no. Q Unique, Razzle, no. Tony no. Touch, Frosty no. Freeze, Mix Master no. Mike, no. Retmatic. I mean, they all ring a distant bell, you know. <laughs> but but they, but they were just. I knew there was there was kind of a crew, and, I, and one thing I noticed during the making of the album was that when I wanted to do like a group vocal thing, um, actually get the kids in the, in the studio for for some singing, um, one day a whole different group of kids came in. I thought, is this still the Rock City crew and, and, <laughs> and the guy? I wish I could remember his name. What are the production credits on that? Do you have them in front of you? Oh, I can't think. I can't think of the single. It's just you and Blue Soldier or, or there, yeah, Bud yeah. Dixon. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, well, Blue. Yeah, Blue is their manager, who is the sister of the guy. I'm not very blurry. It's not be much good to you, really. But um, but yeah, it was it was a bit of a free for all. Um, <laughs> you know, but I remember it being fun. I had a good feeling about it. You know, it was fun to do, and it was a kind of music that um, wasn't exactly unique at the time. But it was part of something that was just starting to happen, I suppose, you know, kind of be. It must have been one of, one of the few. So when it got to number six in the UK, we being in America, were you aware of that? Was that a big deal? Or was it like, oh, it's just the UK. It's all about the American market. From the time I started listening to records, you know, in, Amer- in America, when I grew up, for music kids, it was very tribal. Um, and they were the ones who were into the American stuff, and primarily at that time, the Beach Boys. And then there were the ones like me who were into the English stuff, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and the Kinks. And, and, and so I was very uh, Anglo-centric um, musically from the beginning, from the first records that I bought and stuff like that. I was always keyed towards it. So I certainly got it. I mean, it, it, it made an impression on me that, 
that time I was involved in a um, in a hit record in in England. But you know, I mean, also at the time I thought, oh, that was fun. I mean, I didn't necessarily. Th- I wasn't thinking I I can really sustain this now. Although I did because I was um, not adverse to uh, recreational drugs in my twenties, and 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 so I was. It's kind of a good thing that I had burnt through a lot of that by the time I started to have some opportunities to. Um, to be more of growing up. <laughs> I guess as a producer, do you get the, you're not afforded the luxury to have that kind of thing because you have to be the adult in the room. You have to be the sensible one who's in charge. So therefore you can't be the one that's, you know, caning it or, you know, well, partying a lot. Well, or is, that, is that a myth? Well, there's, you know, there's, there's caning it and, and there's just sort of maintenance buzz. To get you through the night, yeah. I was kind of the, yeah, I was sort of the, um, the maintenance. 12 yeah. cups of coffee, 12 spliffs a day, kind of thing. You know, yeah, and, yeah. But, but no, I, I, I wasn't getting off my head. Um, you know, it was just, just this sort of slightly altered state, you know, which, which I found over the years, and this went on for a long time, you know, um, that um, it was just, it, for one thing, marijuana is a very musical thing. I mean, the jazz guys knew that in the 20s, you know, you know, it just has some kind of um, inherent connection on some cellular level or something. I don't know what it is, but but it's, um, <clears throat> I'm not alone in thinking that. And also it just helps keep your head between the speakers, you know, it's, it's very, very good for starting things. And it's good for um, flashes of sort of um, unexpected and sometimes ballsy ins- inspiration. It's not always great for finishing things. You know, it's not. I, I would I would smoke a lot less when I was mixing, for instance. You know, that's that's when the grown up thing kicked in, like when I had to deliver and not just have fun making it. Can you think of an example of a pot inspired moment you had in the studio? It's like yes, and you kind of like solved a riddle or created something really unique. <sighs> Well, it was, happening, it was happening on a daily basis for about 25 years. I mean, so it'd be, <laughs> it'd be hard for me. Hard to pick one then. Okay, so back in 83. I don't, I don't want oh, this yeah. to sound like I was just a just a wasteoid from my whole, that whole part of my no, career. No, no. But I wouldn't, I'm not going to tell any tales, but I certainly wouldn't be alone. I, yeah. you know, there, it's, it's kind of a producer's little helper. Okay, know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, yeah. So also in 83, uh, the Jules Shear solo album Watchdog that you played... Yeah, um, that's produced by Todd Rundgren. That was interesting. That was done. Actually, that was my introduction to Woodstock because Todd's place, um, actually his place is in Bearsville, which is just up the road. But but that was the first trip I had made to Woodstock. And, and Jules was in the process of moving there. He had a mutual friend there from Pittsburgh and, and he liked the place. And, and so I went there and stayed there for about three weeks. And Todd had been, his records had been part of my formative years. I was a huge fan. And and so to, um, to meet him and then to um, work with him and see him work was a real eye-opener on a few levels <laughs> you know it, it was mm-hmm. um yeah it, it was a, it was a really really good experience and jules and i hadn't been in the trenches for a while and so that it was good in a lot of ways and then i, I ended up moving to woodstock or getting a place in woodstock in the 90s but but the woodstock connection in bearsville studio um was sort of a part of things ongoingly you know from around that time although not from right around that time but but the seed had been planted you know i, I really liked it up there and uh, and todd and i stayed in touch a bit and, and and he's he's he still makes really interesting records and you know it's crazy um, very but, prolific isn't he but he was um yeah he was really one of the guys to me you know, when I was, when I was, you know, in my formative years musically. Did you get any handy production tips from him, either directly or indirectly? 
<laughs> well, he liked to um, hang back. You know, there was a, there was actually there was a bed in the control room, and sometimes <laughs> sometimes Todd would have a, a, a lie down. <laughs> okay, there's hanging back and there's sleeping in the studio. <laughs> there's, there's hanging back and then there's snoring. Um, but so he gets um, woken up. So I'm just hanging no, there, back. No, there was some. There was some. There was some. There was some clever. Some clever things that that he would do. You know, just some stuff that made total sense when I saw it in action, but it never would have occurred to me. Like for instance, when we were doing some guitar stuff, he would, uh, he had op- uh, an open fireplace and the, the studio, his studio was on his property. It was a separate building. Um, and there was an open fireplace there and he had a, a Fender twin set up at an angle in, in the fireplace facing up in, into the chimney. He had two mics all the way up in the, in the chimney stack and on, on leads that he could lower them or, you know, bring them up or down depending on the sound and and quite a few of the guitar parts were recorded like that you know like mic'd up a, up a chimney which which i thought was really fun at the time but he and he also the way he mixed the way because i i identified his records that he made on his own which is most of what he did as having a very very particular sound and i discovered how he did that he had like banks of soundcraft parametric equalizers on every channel like these big things separate from the console um and i watched him do that a few times seeing <laughs> seeing how much he was working the one and a half K across the board, you know? And, and yeah, so it was, it was informative and we, and we had some fun. He's a, he's a funny guy and, uh, and, and quite likable. And he and I sat at the piano and I had traded Beatles songs or something, you know, it was a good experience. Yeah. I, 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 I liked him. There were two, there were two songs on that uh, album. Uh, all through the night and calling your name that ended up being quite big hits. Yeah. Uh, for Cindy yeah. Lauper, Lauper and uh, Alison Wyatt. Did you ever hear, hear those hit versions and be like, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Or did you know they were being well, released? Well, to one, well, one of them, the whispering your name, you know, Jules and I had done, done a demo of that in my bedroom in Boston. Um, and, um, and actually that was the, that was the, the one that the bangles are. Cause I, I, I knew the bangles in, in LA. I used to go out with Mickey once in a while, the bass player. Um, and, and, um, and, and so that that's am I getting this right? Was it them who did that version, or, or hey, it was Alison Moye who did um, "Whispering Your Name." She said that you were That's if she knew what she wants. If she knew what she wants, that's right. Yeah, but and those I, two I, tracks were on that Watchdog album. That's why I bring yeah, it up. I, I, yeah. I done, I done the demo on that. I didn't have anything to do with all through the night. I don't think. Maybe I did the demo on that as well. I don't know. Um, yeah, but Jules and I were, you know, all through that Boston time, we were quite tight. Um, he, you know, he was doing a solo thing. I was doing stuff like Rocksteady Crew that was just coming down the pipeline. What did he think of that when he heard it? Was he surprised that you were like... He was bemused. <laughs> <laughs> because he and I have had very similar music tastes. I mean, we, we would get together and get high and listen to the new ABBA album or Al Green or so, you know what I mean? And, and, mm. and, and, and so, we, you know, we had very broad tastes. Um, but for me to go off on this kind of kids pop thing, I mean, he just thought it was 
cute or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And and he might have been a little. I wouldn't say jealous, but when Western Girls was a hit, he was jealous. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. who wouldn't be? Yeah. 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 We'll get to that later. But yeah, um, not not in a not in a friendship shaking way, but no. you know, definitely something he didn't see coming. You know. So in 84, you got the world's famous Supreme team with Hey DJ. So you, you missed the hip hop at this point. It's like he's done it before he could yeah, do it again kind well, of thing. Well, what the fuck's that about? You know, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I understood how it worked. I, I just listened to the records and said, you know, it's not rocket science or anything. But, you know, I just listening to the combination of elements and the attitude and stuff. And I'm just saying, yeah, well, I can do this, obviously. I mean, you know, it's like, it's fine. And, and Hey DJ was, um, that was actually, that was one of the early um, rap records that had sort of... Um, upfront you know heavy metal-ish guitars on it um there wasn't much of that going on at the time and it got got co-opted quite a lot over the years after that period but um and uh one aside on on the world famous supreme team is that um you know in the late 90s um mariah carey um used huge chunks of the backing track including me playing that piano part um um on on that track called honey which was the lead track on that album called honey Okay, so so do you get and a royalty check I, for that every year? And, do you? And that's how I bought my flat and <laughs> So it takes one sample. <laughs> You're sorted for well, life. They made it the backbone of the song, you know, because when I signed off on that, because I, I had I had part of the publishing on it too, and yeah, and I played most of the backing track, and because I, I didn't do the electric guitars, but I did most of the rest. But um, yeah, so suddenly I was participating in this thing, and and um, I'd never had it. I had a couple of little t- small bits and pieces sampled from. Some earlier stuff before, but that but that was the first time it had really been, you know, like hijacked to make you know and just basically put a new vocal over it, you know, and and so yeah, that was a bit of a money spinner. Wow, excellent! These things but, from like decades before—it's crazy when that happens. It, it continued to pay out for you years and years later. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. So was that our first contact with Malcolm McLaren then? 
Yeah, Malcolm. <laughs> Malcolm rolled into the studio. He flew to Boston, and Malcolm, you know, the human whirlwind. He <laughs> came in the studio and, uh, "Hey, man, how you doing?" Yeah, 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 yeah. And and uh, he said, "I so said I want to do this. Uh, I want to do this thing. I want to do this thing with uh, with hip hop and opera." And he, and he and I said, "Okay." And and he started playing me all these things, Puccini things, all on cassettes. He'd have all his cassettes and all his numbers everywhere, and shit was falling out of his bag. And he's, you know, he's, he was like all over the shop as usual, but <clears throat> full of life and really vibrant and just too many ideas. You know, you, with Malcolm, right up through through the last few times I worked with him, you know, in the, in, in the, since 2000, he, um, you always had to like filter through what was the best of what he had because he just had so many ideas. But but so we we latched onto the opera hip-hop thing and we did Madame Butterfly really just as an experiment just to see if it was going to work um and um and I wrote it with Malcolm and um, Walter Turbot who was the uh, engineer very talented engineer so by um, by writing you mean that you did the entire like musical backing track of the opera yeah, well, was put on the, top of wrote the song he had no song he had nothing yeah he had the idea of doing something with with the concept of Madame Butterfly um and I don't remember whose idea it was, either his or mine. You know, the idea for him to like kind of appear on the record as narrator, um, and and uh, because because the thing that he and Trevor had had gotten on the uh, Buffalo Gals, for instance, you know, where where um, Malcolm would act like the MC, yeah, you know, and and but but on this, uh, we thought that that it'd be better if he was in the story you know kind of like reading you a book kind of thing you know and then and then have the uh, the vocalists expand on it back in Nagasaki I got married to Kim Jong-san that was her name in those days when I was her man I'd gone back and visit her and she got a problem she got a little chocho Jojo Sam was her name, and Mr. Taylor Wolf. Take it away, Jojo. Because for it to work, well, the opera stuff, Puccini knew how to write. I mean, you know, that stuff was there. <laughs> stuff was there for the hijacking, you know. But, but. Um, but we had to write um, like sort of a smooth kind of R&B song, and which is what we did. You know, the um, Malcolm wrote the words, me and Walter wrote the music, and I think I chipped it in the lyrics too. But yeah, so we constructed this thing, and there weren't really any rules about it, except that it had to be good and it had to have opera stuff on it. And we found an opera singer in Boston um, who um, was Hawaiian, if I recall, and, and I just put out some feelers through Rick, I think, through the studio, you know, and, and there was a music conservatory and they recommended so and blah, blah, blah. And the, 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 the woman who sang the lead vocal, whose name I forgot, was somebody Malcolm knew in New York. And she came up and, and she, we did all the vocals in a day and we did the opera stuff in a, in a day, mixed it in a day. I mean, the whole thing was done from the game to end in about 10 days, um, including writing from, you know, from the from, from the time we agreed on which Puccini stuff we were going to use. And the whole thing took about 10 days. And then that was that. And Charisma, which is still the label involved in this UK connection, the Peter Gabriel label, um, they loved it. They talked about it being shorter. Malcolm said no, you know, and and then they, they put it out in the UK right at, right around the time that we were um, starting to work on the album album to go along with it, which became fans. There's a st- another story there, but I'll get to it yeah. in a second. And and and, um, and Malcolm had done this lovely video. I don't know if you've seen it. You know, the girls in the sauna and all that stuff. Yeah. But because because Malcolm didn't appear in the video. 
Um, one of the phases that Top and Pops was going through at the time was that the artist had to appear in the video. And Malcolm, they asked him to do a reshoot and Charisma wanted him to just kind of wave to the camera at the end, anything. But, but, but Malcolm just said, no, I'm not going to do it. And so I don't even think it cracked the top 10 um, because Top and the Pops wouldn't play it. Um, and so that, that was sort of in chart terms, that was sort of one that got away. They still got to number 13, which you think about it, a song based around opera getting to number 13 in 84. That's, that's, a, pretty, that's a big achievement. It was a big hit. I mean, it's probably as a 12 year old, probably the first time I heard opera. Jeremy, it's my first introduction to it. And I actually love that track. It could, it could have, it could have, the, the common wisdom at the time was it could have been top five quite easily. You know, right, if, if, he, yeah. if he had done, if he had done a, you know, we just waved uh, in the video just at the end yeah. in the bathroom. Uh, so so anyway so it was it was like okay let's let's make an album um with this being the template you know the formula and so we started writing and and we agreed on quite a lot of stuff um and i and i recorded out of that place blue jay actually that i mentioned before i recorded a lot of the opera stuff just some choir stuff in cambridge at this churchy place and, and did that and and did quite a bit of work on it and then Malcolm came in and, and announced one day that it was going too slowly and he had to he had a fashion week coming up in the lot or something starting to, start to his, yeah. just starting to fuck up his schedule you know and and, and he uh, and I said well it's going to take as long as it takes I mean you know multiply um, you know excuse me multiply man of butterfly times 10 and you got you know I mean just do the math man and he goes no 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 no, no I can't do it he says you've done great work this is a you have a piece of this too don't worry you know but i'm taking it down to new york um and i forget the guy he worked with he took it in with uh his credit will be on the album nice guy who i've met along the way and so and so because this but but he was hitting it cold and I, you know and me and walter were like had been in the trenches with malcolm on this stuff for weeks and 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 so he did his best but of course in Typical Malcolm fashion, it ended up taking about two months longer than it would have if he'd stayed with us. Um, so, <laughs> and it was only a six-track album then. So, well. Yeah, so there goes Fashion Week. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's just one of those Malcolm things, God bless him. Um, but, um, but yeah, and so, you know, I had I had a look in and, and uh, I helped shape the fans album, but it could have... I will say this: it could have been more. I mean, you know, it could it could have been more a bit more of an event as an album. Um, but I can't remember his name. Um, Robbie but, Kilgore. But, yes, Robbie Kilgore. He did, considering the fact that M Malcolm hit him like a freight train, and, and he just inherited all these tapes and stuff like that, and had to find his footing very very quickly. He did a good job. You know, I mean, yeah. he, you know, he, he definitely pulled something together out of it. It wasn't a disaster, but but I've always thought that it could have been just something a little more special. The previous two, the two albums you just made them was the Rocksteady Crew had seven tracks and this one had six tracks. Is there ever an issue with the, the record company with an album being too short? Or was that not an issue at the time? This is like just like 30 remember, minutes long. I don't remember it being, you know, the coming up not too far in the future, the So album by Peter Gabriel had seven mm -hmm. tracks, didn't it? You know? uh, I think eight tracks and then nine tracks on the CD, I think. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> but, but um, yeah, any, anyway, it wasn't. I don't remember it being an, an issue. Um, you tell me. I mean, you know, I but I don't. In fact, I, if I if I had to guess, I would have said there was ten tracks on the Rock City crew. I don't remember. 
I don't remember that being a thing. There weren't really EP culture wasn't really around at the time. You know, what I mean, I don't think the reviewers and 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 distributors and stuff, you know, would claim that this doesn't have enough bulk to be considered an album. I don't think those questions were coming up around that time. I could be wrong. Okay, so finally for eighty four, what was the most Malcolm McLaren esque moment you can remember with Malcolm? <laughs> if you listen to the beginning of Man of Butterfly, where he's doing the spoken stuff. He went out, he was in the library of Synchrosound. Um, he, the track was running and he had, the, he had, we did it with like Sharpies on these cards, you know, the, like all his spoken stuff was scripted. And he was, uh, and I had a ver- version in front of me as well. And he was through the glass and he was looking at me and his headphones on. He wasn't the most natural headphone wearer in the world. I remember that, <clears throat> but he had this thing on and he would look at me and I, I point when it was time for him to do his line and we got, a couple of things that way, but he was getting a little frustrated and stuff. And so finally I, I got some headphones and I went out there and stood beside him and we were both looking at the thing. We rolled the tape and I would like pop him one on the shoulder when he was going to start pointing the line and, and just kind of tap his shoulder and for him to start speaking. And I'd give him like some kind of hand signals for it to be a little slower, a little faster. So we'd take it again. But there's, <laughs> but there's one line I can still hear it. If I'm listening for it. Um, I think it's like um, something <clears throat> he says he was a bounder or something like that. Bounder. And at the end of him saying this line, I think that was the line, you can hear him just about to start laughing. And and in that I can remember this quite clearly. He just lost it. He just, you know, he just <laughs> he just thought that was the funniest line that he'd ever heard. He just couldn't stop laughing. We had to stop. He had he had to like get a coffee and we had to start again because he had the giggles. <clears throat> and I can still sort of hear evidence of that when I listen to that spoke stuff. The other thing was that <clears throat> that when when we decided to part ways, and it was quite amicable, I wasn't delighted by his decision which was very sudden but it was fair enough um he had gone off to new york i knew he was going the next morning and then that afternoon i got a call from uh, from the hilton or wherever he was staying in downtown boston saying um yeah, this was a contact number for Malcolm McLaren. Is he there? And I said, no, no, he's gone to New York. And, and they said, well, his room's full of personal belongings. And he and he had just basically just, I guess, put on some clothes and walked out the door and flown to New York. All his stuff was still in his room and you know, like three pairs of shoes and all stuff. And so I had someone from the studio go over and gather it all up. And then I asked him later if there's anything he wanted. He goes, nah, fuck it. I just bought some more stuff. And I forget it. Throw it away. <laughs> oh, we've all done that, haven't we? Just leave your belongings yeah, but behind. We are, but in my case, <laughs> by mistake. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, just you just didn't give a shit and feel like packing, obviously. Okay, if you're Malcolm McLaren, I guess you don't have to, do you? Really? And then, Mal- you know, Malcolm, <clears throat> um, we went through periods over the years where we were quite tight. We did quite a few things together, especially in Paris. But right. that's for another story. Higgs has. Um, let's take a break from the years then for our first quick five. This is about your favourites of the 80s. These are the ones that you're not involved with, yes? Yeah? So it's just <clears throat> your favourites for that decade, okay? So if any spring to mind, then feel free to share. So, um... Your favorite '80s album that you weren't involved with? Um, 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 the Visitors by Album. Ah, good choice. What's your favorite track on the album? That's a good the album. Vis- the Visitors or um, Slipping Through My Fingers. Oh, one of Us. It was you know, which is uh, one of the classic breakup songs. Yeah, um, it's um, it's just a fabulous record. It is yeah. a great album. It's a great way to go out, isn't it? As a band. Yeah. One of us is Uh, favorite 80s book oh 80s 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 i really liked money by martin amos i remember 
carrying that around for a while. I really liked White Noise by Don DeLillo. Oh, what was the one by William Gibson? Necromancer, is that what it's called? Mm. We kind of yeah. predicted the internet and all kinds of shit. You know, that, that, was, that was a good book. Okay. Favorite 80s film? Ah, uh, The Shining. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking mind. Uh, favorite 80s TV program or series? I, I you know, I've, I've never, and there's no, uh, nothing about this. I mean, I watch a lot of TV these days, you know, but, but at the time I wasn't really watching hardly any TV. And, and you know, in terms of, um, I used to tune in, you know, most times a Saturday Night Live, for instance, and stuff like that, you know, but, but I wasn't really, and, it, and also this was kind of, aside from Dallas, and, and there was another one too, you know, the, you know, nighttime serial soap stuff wasn't hadn't really hit the ground yet. Tomorrow night, I'll own Gold Canyon 340. You need a lesson, you see. And the only way I could get the message through that thick skull of yours was to have you bankrupt your mama's company while I just sat back and watched you. You're out of my life for good. No, I'm not finished yet. Sure you are. Tomorrow morning, the janitor's going to come in here and sweep you out with the rest of the trash. Unless, of course, you do the honorable thing. Get in the elevator, go up the roof, and jump off, huh? <laughs> but movies, I'm thinking of movies now. Um, I love the right stuff. Have you ever seen that movie? I've never seen it, but I know it's about yeah, but it's the space it's, program, it's, yeah. It's it's fantastic, and and uh, Blue Velvet, you know, you know when when yeah, um, David, David Lynch, Lynch yeah. David Lynch starts to make his mark. Okay, um, and um, favorite eight. I can, eight, I can tell you some other eighties albums now. I'm thinking yeah, about. yeah, yeah, go for I, it. I, I, well, I loved Peter's. Breakthrough records, so, so I thought that yeah. was terrific. Sign of the Times by Prince, I thought was fantastic. Rain Dogs by Tom Waits, I loved. Some of the Pretender stuff at the opening of the decade, I thought were really, really good. Um, and then there was some, like some, you know, some, there were so many good singles around the time. But you know, once, in fact, I just heard a couple of weeks ago. If you think about records that I would love to have made that didn't, besides the Visitors, which I would love to have made, um, is uh, Don't Don't Dream It's Over by uh, Yes. I think it's an absolute perennial classic, and it's just got everything going for it. And I would love to have been. Involved. Is there anything you would have done differently with it? It's pretty. I'd put my name. Flawless. Yeah. <laughs> <That's enough. laughs> no, it's, it's, or just, just do a no, keyboard part to get a key to get a co-write, yeah, so you get some of the royalties. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. that keyboard, that keyboard part. That's that's Mitchell. Organ Froome, bit. Mitchell Froome, you know. Yeah. And, um, and what's his name? Matthew Fisher, who did the keyboard part on Whiter Shade of Pale for 
book I'll hear him back in the 60s he successfully sued and decades later he got a piece of the publishing because because that's really the part that everyone sings you know and then and, and, and the idea of like players getting a piece of the action um, that's the hook isn't it yes he wasn't yeah he wasn't credited yeah. on the original yeah, but, yeah. He, but he was just in the band of Gary Brooker and uh, what's his name the lyricist wrote it um, <clears throat> fabulous song fabulous band as well um, but um, but yeah that was just he never thought he got his due for that and fair enough and, absolutely and he, so I always assume Gary Brooker played that part and it wasn't him it was yeah no no but, yeah Matthew Fisher was the organist for for all those all the primary albums of, of theirs you know they they just say Jules and the Polar Bears actually opened for Pocal Harem once in Omaha Nebraska wow <laughs> there you go there's a claim to fame <laughs> there you go and the last question is because you already answered the favorite the eighties song you wish you'd produced you just answered that thanks for that uh favorite eighties live experience live experience I saw the sign of the times tour oh wow that was, was amazing which was excellent Princess Peak, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Just, yeah, it was fantastic. And you know, I've seen Peter play more than a dozen times. I'm sure you know, but but there were a couple of his shows in the late '80s that were that were really special. The, those are the ones that popped to mind. I wasn't going. To, I was going to some some shows. More kind of one-off things. I was working a lot. You know, you know when 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 I when I like from '85 through to almost the mid 90s I was working flat out I didn't you know one marriage went down the tubes you know I had trouble keeping girlfriends I was just like a machine um, part of it was to pay for the demise of the first marriage actually <laughs> so I did have a lot of motivation to um, keep making hits 1985 again so 85 so you record Crush with OMD Orchestral Maneuvers yes. in the Dark that's recorded in Liverpool. So was this when you moved to the UK, or was it just just for this particular project? You no, in the UK? and that wasn't re- that wasn't recorded in Liverpool. Actually, that was recorded uh, in, in, in Oxfordshire at this uh, residential okay. place called the Manor, and it was mixed in London, mixed at Advision Studios. Just. Were you were you like based in the UK at this time? Um, no, um, no, there were. <clears throat> there was, uh, in fact, Crush holds a special place for me and um, because it was the f- crush was the first thing that i'd ever produced all alone right. it was the first time that my name ever appeared as the as the singular producer on an album and i really enjoyed it and, and really liked them and and i'd never i'd never been in a residential studio before um i'd never been in complete control before and i just it was just really wonderful time and i, I can remember and it was very very english i'd been in and out of london but i'd never really been in the countryside which is where this was i mean not like in the sticks but you, you know it's just outside oxford and it was very <clears throat> special and memorable all the way around and i really liked that album there's still some stuff on that record i, I could listen to it most any day of the week you know it's uh, it came out really really well you got a co-writing on so in love so how did that come about yeah um 
it needed a middle eight. And I said, how about this? <laughs> which is, which is the way there was a few, I mean, although I, I consider myself to be a songwriter these days, you know, but, but, but for a long time, I was more like song maintenance, song doctor type stuff. I'd, I'd get, end up with a piece of the composition because I would fill in some blanks or I'd solve right. some problem, you know, because in that, in that case in particular, And also in Love Comes Quickly. Yeah, I'll get to that. I I ended up writing the middle A just because it was like, like these chords? Okay. You know, it was just like in the studio fabric of the, of the time in the studio kind of of thing. And, and, uh, and that's how, how that happened with So In Love. And I did, I did quite a bit of playing on, on that record as well. There, you know, they did a, a documentary on the making of that record, um, which I saw last year, someone pointed out, and I, I'd forgotten it even existed where they show. And there's some parts of it that are very good. Me on camera, I look absolutely petrified of being on camera. But but there's some stuff in the studio that were, it was, um, they, they were orchestrated, not orchestrated, I would say. I mean, they were setups, you know, I mean, it wasn't really him doing the vocal, but but it's pretty good, pretty good for that that period of time, you know, with me behind the, the console acting like I'm doing something meaningful pushing faders around and and Andy doing a vocal and um, and the drummer playing and stuff like that there's some pretty vibey stuff on that is that on YouTube it's around um, what's it called if, if, if you put crush documentary OMD something like that yeah there's, okay. there's a couple there's a couple of real moments in it actually um, most mostly built around the um, yeah <clears throat> you know because because Andy's quite charismatic as a, as a singer and he knows how to work the camera you know and, and yeah, that yeah. sort of thing <clears throat> so there was some whereas me and Paul Humphreys it's just really <laughs> and me in particular it looks like we're going to start crying or something like <laughs> not, 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 in, not in the studio scenes um, yeah. but, but when they were asking me questions you know <laughs> but, they, but they said some nice things about me I recall you know that well, I had I'd come, Completely forgotten until I saw it again. But just saying, they never had anyone. As far as the solo producer thing, they never had anyone work on one of their records as a producer who um, who they welcomed in with another whole set of ideas. You know, and that was something that they said they wanted to do for that album. They wanted to try and kind of shift the balance within the band a bit. So that's what I was going to ask about was when you're producing an artist that already had quite a career and done a bunch of albums. Do you listen to all the albums to see where they come from, where they're at? Do you have a, a design brief? Does the, the artist I mean, it, come it, to you and say, "This is what we want"? It it it, it depends. It, it depends. I mean, I I was um, in Boston actually. I remember um, having a copy of a vinyl copy of Architecture and Morality, which was it wasn't the album before the one I did. It was the one before that. So you know, and so I liked them. I thought you know, I thought I thought they were good, and I knew what they were on about. And you know, they liked Kraftwerk. I liked Kraftwerk. You know, I read a couple of interviews, and so I was pleased to get the call. That call was on. Definitely on the back of Madame Butterfly directly. You know, that was the domino effect. Yeah. Madame, that, that was the record that I did that I probably wouldn't have gotten that call if I hadn't made that record with Malcolm, for instance. You know? Okay. And is there a difference in British artists and American artists? Is there a, 
British sensibility that's different in the studio? Is it noticeable or does it just depend on the um, artist? It's so much a case-by-case case thing. You know, I, yeah. think, I think maybe sometimes Americans, and this is kind of like <laughs> from the bottom of the culture to the top, sometimes they're a bit irony-challenged. <laughs> it's not a cliche then. <laughs> it's true. No, and and, and uh, can maybe get a little overly precious, but I've had some very overly precious moments with some English artists too. It, it's, a real, it's a real case-by-case thing. Okay, well, we'll point them out when we get to them, okay? Okay, maybe <laughs> consult my legal team. Okay, so um, the Pet Shop Boys, West End Girls. Obviously, this is a massive, massive—not just a massive hit, but like a big cultural moment. Did you see it's that almost... thing? In the, did you see the thing in the Guardian last year where they declared it the the, the greatest? Yes. Clarification corner. The Guardian newspaper in 2020 voted West End Girls the best number one single of all time. Carl Chameleon didn't even make the hundred. Ha! Thanks. It was crazy. Neil. Neil called me up. Neil woke me up at like nine thirty in the morning. and said, "You have to look at this thing in the <laughs> and, and it was like, "What the fuck?" And, <laughs> and and he and I agreed on a follow up phone call that we both would have picked good vibrations. But but we also we also One, agreed, yeah. yeah we also agreed though that it was interesting seeing that, which of course was profoundly subjective that whole list. But mm. but really interesting to to realize the seminal records that we all love that never made it to number one for what, yeah. for, for whatever reason. You, you know what I mean? It could because something was clogging up the number one strawberry fields i mean there's a whole list i couldn't believe it I, I never really thought of it that way you think you know these these records that are just become part of the fabric of your life and you just assume they were like huge you know but and they were but but uh, it certainly had huge impact but um technically not number one perhaps so where would you put west end girls in the, the pantheon of number one singles oh i think i might have slipped it into the top 10 <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know yeah in, was... in terms of in terms of a, of a identifiable moment that's a more modest approach than making it number one isn't it it's just not you're not drawing too much attention to it are you just just number yeah. nine or number eight yeah yeah just yeah well, just a tip of the hat so what was your first contact um, with the pets and the first time you heard i assume you heard the first version of west end girls that had been released I did, hear, I did hear the first version yeah Sometimes you're better off dead There's a gun in your hand It's pointing at your head You think you're mad Too unstable Kicking in chairs And knocking down tables In a restaurant In a West End town Call the police There's a madman around Running down Underground To a dive bar In a West End town In a West End town A dead end world But East End boys And West End manager at that time the manager um who'll go on name because it didn't end well but but uh, but he was um he was also md of um charisma records and he kind of took me under his wing and you know so but you know he was important at a certain time and in the um the the, inc- the inquiry when you know the overture the first contact came through him and he said you know you should look at this you know they just signed the parlophone and they almost had a hit with some, i forget what, what label the uh, the the Bobby Orlando version of, of Western Girls was, but but <clears throat> I had already through just because I was starting to kind of make some a few connections around town in, in London. Um, the um, although I was still coming in on a just on a tourist visa and just getting little you know weekly rentals and stuff at that time, um, and um, 
I can't remember the first time I met them. I know we re- I know we recorded it at AdVision Studios. And I remember a few things about the sessions and the shape and feel of it and some specifics, but I can't remember the, <clears throat> the first meeting. But I but I I do know that um, that I had heard it. Uh, the record company thought it was interesting, and and their manager Tom Watkins was <clears throat> was a little skeptical because he was a real kind of um, gay 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 dance anthem kind of guy, and and, mm-hmm. and he and he thought that the Bobby Orlando version wasn't dancey enough. Um, <laughs> and so, but yeah, we you know we we get in the studio and um, and we started fooling around with it. And I don't remember if it was me or Neil who wanted to slow it down. But but that's but if, if if it wasn't me, I mean, I certainly got straight on board with that. You know, you know, we wanted to make it more um, evocative and not you know take out any sort of possible cheesiness going on. So was there a bit of a Madam Butterfly approach as well? Because it has. I think it belongs in the same kind of ballpark, the same way that OMD were looking at that as well. Well, well, Neil, well, Neil really liked Man and Butterfly, and I think I think that was I don't know, but I, he did like it. I don't know if he associated my name. I, I forget if it was the label who suggested. I, I really don't remember that part, but but um, yeah, we 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 just we just wanted it to be like a. Um, like a you know wrong side of the tracks kind of thing like kind of an urban tale you know and, and, and neil's not like a, a pipes kind of singer he was never going to belt it out you know but, you know it, and he wasn't didn't really want to rap it you know it was just kind of this, this kind of spoken thing in a, in a tradition that's neither rap nor i don't know what you'd call that what would you call neil's vocal in the verses that I, I, I it, it is kind of well he, he just goes like a white middle class rap isn't it that's what makes yeah. it kind of unique yeah it is a rap but it's a white middle class English man doing and, it, and there wasn't a lot of that going around at the time. And no. and 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 also, he really owned it. I mean, you know, see, he, you know, you, you couldn't really imagine anyone else doing no, no. that particular version of that song. Did you hear um, the E seventeen version? They had a hit with it, didn't they? Did they? I don't recall. Yeah, it. there you go. It says it all then. Yeah, <laughs> Tom Walken strikes again. Too many shadows, whispering voices, faces, posters. Too many choices. If So, but I remember those sessions quite quite clearly, and and I played kind of everything. <laughs> you did the trumpet solo on didn't on there, didn't you on the um on the emulator? Yeah, was it? yeah well, you know, we were, and and also I, I wrote those chords at the beginning, at, at the end. Um, you know, I did this whole kind of arrangement thing, um, but um, but the trumpet solo, yeah, we we thought there should should be something there on the Bobby Orlando version. It went all kind of camp. Um, with these big um, orchestral samples and choir samples, if I recall. And I like to figure that the that the choir started to do on the Bobby Orlando thing. And I wanted to, I remember having a conversation with Neil saying, well, it's on that other record. I said, well, you own the master. You know what I mean? You know, so we, we use the, we use the da, 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 you know, thing. But then, 
the thing that happened after that on the Bobby Orlando record was just too ridiculous or something. I don't know. And so I was just, I had an emulator to this kind of sample, one of the earlier sampling keyboards. We were just going through presets, really just trying to find a sound. And one of them was a trumpet and Neil just said, I'll try that. And so, and so we just did it like a joke or yeah, here comes the trumpet solo on Western girls. You know? <laughs> and that was, that was one take. And it was just me dicking around basically. And so you and, hadn't worked out before you recorded. That. No, and I'm not just, bragging. It was just one of those things. Just one, you know, I'm, cause I'm not a, play, I'm not much of a player player at all. And I remember fixing up the very, very end because I did something particularly stupid. And, and we were saying, okay, well, let's see how this sounds tomorrow. But the next day we liked it. And so it just stuck, you know, it just, oh, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive. Though. That's it, like, wasn't a, it wasn't a plan. I remember that, that on the last day that we had in the studio, um, we were mixing, I think it was the, just the fifth day or something. It went pretty fast. And David Jacob, the engineer was setting up the mix in the morning. And I went in in the early afternoon, cloudy day in London. And I was listening to it and there was just some stuff we hadn't hadn't really organized the very intro yet that started there was a hi-hat and then a bass drum came in and then a, a note came in on the on a string sound and it seemed a little uneventful you know so neil and i talked the day before about you know having some city sounds in the middle and we found something from some library or something and there's a little bit of ambience in there but but i had i had a portable cassette recorder quite a good one and i decided to go outside and just record some cars going by or something you know see if we could find something to use for the top and david was working on some other parts of the mix and so i went up in the street and it just started raining i didn't have an umbrella and i had i had this uh, cassette recorder and a little stereo mic and so AdVision Studios, where this was being done, uh, was on a one-block street in central London, right around the corner from BBC called Gosfield Street. Right across, directly across from AdVision, was Simon Napier-Bell's office, um, and they were at the time managing Wham!, who was just barely still together. I think they broke up in pretty short order. So anyway, so I went up on the street, and sure enough, like day and night, there was always at least two or three girls, and sometimes half a dozen or like a school bus full of girls, hanging around this Wham! office across the street, just hoping for a coming or going, which apparently did happen from time to time. So I, I walked down, I walked down to New Cavendish Street in the corner, and it was really starting to rain now. I was trying to keep the cassette recorder dry, and there's some cars were going by, and a woman walked by with high-heeled shoes, and I thought, oh, that's, that's good, you know? And another car went by, and I figured that's got to be enough, and so I turned around, and I'm heading back in towards the studio, and the girls across the road started singing some song, and I still don't know exactly what it was. I don't know if it was a, a reprise from a, a Wham song or some kind of schoolgirl chant, but if you listen to the beginning of West End Girls, you can hear the woman in the high heels, you can hear the uh, cars going by, and you can hear them singing this little song, kind of right around the time where the bass drum comes in. So I went down into the studio 
I wound the cassette thing back to the top, and um, I asked Dave to go back to the top, and I, I said, let's just see if we've got if we've got anything here. Just open up a couple of inputs patched in from the cassette machine. And so he did, and uh, and I hit play, and he hit play, and the top just happened exactly like it sounds in the record, you know, and exactly the there was no edits, no anything, and the girls sing the girls sing the little song right after the first bass drum strike, I think. And I said, shit, we should have recorded that. And, and he said, well, I did record it. And then that was the record. That was the beginning of the record. And I took that as a sign of some sort. So you, there wasn't edited at all, that intro? No, there was, was no, just... no, edit, no edits whatsoever. In fact, when the, you can hear, if, you, if you're listening for it, you can hear just before the bass part comes in, you can hear like a, a, a car kind of accelerating away or it sounds like a van or something like that. And it was all completely real-time, unedited, first take, hit play, he hit record, and that was that. Neil Tennant saying in the booklet for, for please for like the um the special edition that um he said at five seconds in you can hear a girl say it's sting because you, you look like sting at the time apparently so well you know I, I can never hear that when I listen to it I'm I've like, listened I, I've listened for that I think that's I think he's misremembering that I, I I remember I remember that being recorded but I think we've chucked it in the middle section or something like that you know, uh, think, so it is there um, but not because I, because yeah I did bear some passing resemblance to, to sting particularly when I had as as I did then had my jacket pulled up over my head <laughs> as everyone <laughs> did it was really started I was trying to keep the cassette recorder from being ruined right. but um, but yeah so that's that yeah that and that was the intro to West Ham Girls so when you when you hear the song on the radio do you turn it up do you zone out or do you switch it off I'm not sure I'd call it a thrill, but but I I I really like it. I mean, you know, there's I don't think there's anything I would change about the mix. You know, when I hear my records on the radio, encounter them randomly out in the world, I always I just always listen to the mix. You know, I mean, I, I still think the tambourine's too loud on regret. You know, I mean, it's, like, it's just that's just the way I, I listen to things. That's what I mean. About, can you can you hear it on the radio and just enjoy it as a song, or you always yeah, just listen to every in, bit? In the case in the case of Western Girls, yes, definitely. Okay, it's just, it's just one of those things, and I don't feel that way about everything that I've worked on. But but that that's definitely it's just it's a it's turned out to be a perennial. You know, it's yes, a, it's, it's a classic. I'm, I'm really yeah. I'm, I'm really pleased to have been involved. You know? No one knows your name.
Okay, so when did that single project become an album project? Was it always well? Um, so that that was done in isolation. Um, that that was they just wanted to. They were just doing starting. Their, oh, I don't know if you heard that. I just bumped the mic. Um, they were just they were just doing their had finalized their deal with the Parlophone, and they knew they because they didn't want to pay to or Tom Watkins wanted I think wanted to do something with the Bobby Orlando version but but the record company um, didn't want to buy out those masters they just wanted a clean slate and so that's when the Pet Shop Boys wanted to they wanted to generate new masters on, on Western Girls and so we did that in isolation I remember we did it in July maybe June or July of that year and that was that um, and and then I forget what I was doing after that but but um, but then they want then they're going to release it um, and we had talked about doing some more stuff, but they weren't even sure they were going to do an album with Parlophone. You know, the, you know, the Western girls seemed to be what everyone was interested in. But then some of the initial reaction to it, even before it was released, released, um, they they wanted to do the album. They decided to go ahead and, and, and do the whole album. But but when Western girls, you know, it was released in the run up to the holidays. Um, and it just kind of kept slowly creeping up the charts and creeping up the charts. And and I, I'd had a medium-sized chart thing with So In Love. And, um, and there have been two or three things by that point. And I think there was another single from the OMD album that maybe went top 10 or close to it. And so I was kind of getting used to this being on the charts thing. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't shocking every time it happened anymore. Yeah. I wasn't quite at the, at the point where I expected it yet. That came later. But, but, I, <laughs> but, I, but I was definitely getting accustomed to the idea that I, that, that could happen. You know, but when Western Girls, you know, got held off um, number one at Christmas by the Christmas number one, but then the first week of January it went to number one, and and Neil and I talked about it just a little while while after, saying that for both of us it felt like something had gone wrong with the charts. <clears throat> you know, there was some kind of aberration with the charts. Number one, what? And I think it was number one for just for one or two weeks. But when it went back down, it was sort of like things were going back to normal. You know what I mean? It was really, it was a very funny sensation, and then. <clears throat> It, it kind of then it went up you know, all kind of international and then and, and actually it was at on the back of that you know when it went international that i realized that i, I could make a living as a record producer <laughs> you know, like, like i could because it had only been you know i'd only been was it been two years that i'd been sort of in the saddle and i'd only just made that one album with omd where i was i was the solo producer and so it was still i mean i was i i was bringing something you know i had some experience like i told you you know all, all through my 20s and my my waist years you know but i was learning a lot of stuff so i was equipped to handle it if you know if i had had a number one international number one when i was 23 i would have fucked up you know i would yeah yeah you know i mean it would might have taken me a couple of years to blow it you know but but it wouldn't you know you know what i mean but but by the time i was just hitting 30 and and um and western girls took off i was uh, you know i was prepared i was grown up enough you know not not to blow it end of part one of the interview thanks so thanks for Stephen for the interview he actually got back in touch for a quick follow-up interview because he had more on Western Girls. That was all that stuff on the intro, which I found fascinating. I would love to know what the song is those girls are singing at the beginning. If you have an idea, let me know. Uh, so I really appreciate Stephen doing that. That was hugely helpful and considerate. Uh, and also for providing the pics of Petrol Boys in the studio recording Western Girls. You can see those on Twitter at Etisography. Uh, say hi. So yeah, so there's more Petrol Boys in the second part. And I, lo- I love that. I love Pet Shop Boys. I can define my entire teenage years through all the way throughout my twenties using their single releases as signposts along the way. Now I miss the CD single. They did great singles uh, with great B sides. Alternative to me is right in there with my top three uh, Pet Shop Boys albums. 
If you know anyone who loves the pets, then please steer this episode their way. Like I said, there'll be more pets in episode two, along with Eurasian New Order, communards, and loads more. What else? I've um, posted the link to that Guardian Top 100 Singles list, and that's in the episode description. It will annoy you in places. Uh, Carly Ray Jepsen call me maybe 25 places higher than Bridge Over Troubled Water. So I've written Brudge Over Troubled Water in my notes. Uh, and also ridiculously low placings for I'm Not In Love and A Wider Shade Of Pale, but what can you do? Uh, so to finish, doing, uh, I was doing a final deep dive on Stephen Haig-related 80s music today and um, discovered this EP uh, Stephen produced in 1983 called Kinetic by a female artist called Hillary. It seemed to be the only thing she did, but it's pretty good. And the track I've selected from it is called Drop Your Pants. And yes, it's as lyrically unsubtle as the title suggests, uh, featuring the should-be-immortal line, You play the symbol on my fanny. Language to yeah. uh, anyway, enjoy and adios amigos. Don't leave me for another. You've got no pride to live with mother. Don't take your fruit from my basket. Your peaches are poison and always in season. I see you giving girls the eye. You taste the good before you buy. You trick or treat beneath the sheet. It's head to toe between my feet. Strap your pants around your ankles. You make me shiver when you deliver. Strap your pants around your ankles. You make me shiver when you deliver. Strap your pants around your ankles. You make me shiver when you deliver. Strap your pants around your ankles. You make me shiver when you deliver.
a place that no one knows Where money talks and streets are gold Someone stands in every door And if they speak, they break the law Who can work something out? Who can work something out? Ask a question, blank faces Read the news and turn the pages Watch them play a different game And no one knows your name I'm a bandage!